0: I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 8. And we're going to pick up where we left off last time. And we've been studying through the Gospel of John for many, many, many weeks. I would, though, like to pray before we read our passage of Scripture. Sometimes we pray before, sometimes we pray after. Either way, we need to pray on one side of it or the other, because we need help with understanding it and obeying it. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we've been singing about your son since we gathered in this room, and Lord, it's our request that you would open our eyes so we can see him, so we can understand who he is, what he's come here to do. That we would see the salvation that he has brought to this world as the light of the world. Open our minds to understand. And Lord, help us to obey. And Lord, give us particular wisdom and judgment today concerning this specific passage. uh, That we would receive it as it was meant to be received. And it's these things we ask in your name. Amen. Well, if you have that location open in your Bibles, depending on your translation, verse 53 of chapter 7 may be right there at the beginning of chapter 8 or not, but we'll actually begin reading in verse 53, chapter 7, they went each to his own house, verse 1 of chapter 8, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? I mentioned last week that depending, again, on your translation, you may have a note between chapters 7 and 8. You may have a note at the bottom of your page. Or you may have no note at all. Or you might not have been able to find what we just read. (laughs) Depending on your translation. And I talked about last week that we would discuss... Why that is has to do with whether or not this passage of of John is authentic in the same respect as the rest of the chapters of John. And the problem with its genuineness, according to scholarship, are the facts that the oldest manuscripts, and that might be your note, if you have an ESV, which is what I'm reading, earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And what we mean by manuscripts are copies. You have somewhat of a manuscript in front of you. It's a copy. There, there are many, many, many like them. But the problem with not finding this in the earliest manuscripts, and when we say earliest, that means the ones closest to John's original manuscript, where he wrote with his own hand. That copy... The original copy was later copied, and that copy was copied. And it would not be 1,500 years until the printing press was made where we could set the type and mass-produce copies identical. So the earlier manuscripts would be the closest to what John actually wrote. That's the problem. The earliest manuscripts don't include what we just read. In addition to that, the early church fathers, these were the ones that would commentate on the apostolic writings, also do not mention what we just read. So likely their copies didn't have this either. Now where we do begin to see what we just read, this story of the woman caught in adultery is much further downstream in later copies which give us the understanding that perhaps it was added later, that it wasn't original to John. We see it in different places in John, in different manuscripts. And there's a few places where we actually see it in Luke's gospel, not in John's gospel at all. So even though the copyists might not have known where to put this story, once it surfaced, they did seem unwilling to discard it. Because most of our Bibles still have it. To be sure, saying that this story does not belong to John is not the same as saying that this story is unhistorical. You know what I mean by that? To say that John didn't write it is one thing. To say that it's not true is another. There are many books of the Bible, Hebrews in particular. We don't know who wrote that. But we consider it inspired scripture. And by the same scholarship, we have little reason for doubting that these events took place. And in addition to that, we can be sure that the story is true to the character of the Jesus we've seen so far in John. This sounds a lot like the Jesus John has been writing about. In specific ways. Writing in the ground and not answering the questions taking an unanswerable question and turning it around and giving them another unanswerable question. This sounds a lot like Jesus. Throughout the history of the church, it's been held that this little story is authentic. So I think it's certainly worth our while to study it in our series through John, even though most likely John didn't write it. So with that said, and I hope in time on a Wednesday evening in the future... We can look at this specific issue rather academically, like we're in class, making notes and studying, and adding up all the evidence that gives us our faith and the trustworthiness of the Bibles we have in our lap. But for this time, studying through John itself, what we'll do this morning is study this very dramatic narrative. And then, rather than making points of application... I think it's best to just view the one huge implication of the story and then find that same truth in another place in Scripture that has no worry as to who wrote it or whether or not it's authentic to its author. So what we'll do is we'll see that what we're reading here is not the only place we find it. And if it turns out that this is not part of our Bibles originally as John wrote it, We've got no less a Bible because the truth is seen elsewhere. So with that having been said, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're not going to read there yet. We're going to close there, but I want you to have it on hold. Stick your bulletin there in Romans chapter 8 because that's where we're going to finish. I like to hear Bible pages turning. Don't take my word for it. Look at it with your own eyes and think of it with your own mind and trust your own heart to it as God's Word. All right, the scene is set in verse 2. And after having spent the night in the Mount of Olives, as the record tells us, and including portion of the previous chapter that everyone else slept in their homes we're gonna see this occurring more often as well that Jesus doesn't go home he goes to the Mount of Olives and he prays all night staying in the garden then it tells us John returns to the temple early in the morning and like he has been accustomed to seeing a crowd gathers and in this case Jesus sits down to teach them and that's what teachers did teachers would sit rather than stand. Earlier in chapter 7 where he was proclaiming that he uh, was the living water, if anyone thirsts come to me, that was more a proclamation in the middle of the street with everyone standing there crying out loud. This is different. He's sitting down, he's teaching and people are listening. And what happens next rather abruptly is clearly a trap. We see this elsewhere in Scripture where the Pharisees come and They want to find a way to arrest him. They've been trying to do it. They haven't found the right time. They need to get him to say something on record that uh, is indefensible. So this is their attempt. While Jesus is teaching, you can imagine what this looks like. He's in the temple courts. People are sitting and they're listening. There's a stir and everyone turns to see what's going on and a group of scribes and Pharisees it mentions them both are bringing a woman into the middle of the crowd and they're pushing and they're shoving don't know if they're all seated in chairs or down or if people stand while Jesus is sitting we we don't know but i think it'd be safe to assume this was quite a commotion and the more we learn about the story whether or not this woman is willingly being dragged in to this very public setting. That's for the history books. But we try to imagine it with our mind. And as we read through it, and most of us know this story, it's very familiar to us. It's almost impossible to think through the the scene without allowing our mind to be drawn into the, the spectacle of it all. Really the brutality of it. Of all the things that one can be caught in. And would rather the public never know. I think this is probably about as, as bad of a case as you could think. Everyone's looking at her and these men. And she's probably gathered up whatever she could. Being caught as they say in the act. It's with the same indecency that they tell her story to everyone who's listening. And then they waste no time getting down to business. In the law, Moses said that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? We want you on record, Rabbi. So you can just imagine the setting. No one's talking through this. No one's checking their phone they had such a thing everybody's completely fixed and waiting on jesus to answer now before the narrator here tells us what jesus says and he does something before he says something gives us this little clue here which is not unlike what john has done for us up until now, he gives us these editorial comments that betray what's going on in the background or in the motives of the people. He says they did this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. And this actually accounts for a few things. Because they had courtrooms for this type of stuff, but this isn't happening in a courtroom. This is happening in the middle of Jesus teaching a, a, a mob of people in the court of the temple so there's got to be a reason for this so right off the bat this probably gives us an indication as to the the motives behind this publicity stunt we want everybody to see this and we want everybody to hear this and we know that this will get their attention they did this to test him so what does that carry into it was was the whole thing a setup Or is Jesus the only one that's set up? And they conveniently happen to find this woman caught in an act that morning. And they put it together as quick as they could. Well, we don't know. But it may give justification for their pitiful casework as well. Because as far as the way you try someone for this crime, this is not the way it typically goes. In every instance of this specific sin, the Old Testament the passages that we have that tell us how to go about all this, it always, if you'll forgive me, takes two to tango. The punishment is always for two parties him and her. Where's the dude? If she's caught in the act, he must have been there. Did he run away? And trying to make sure she didn't get away, did he get away? Or does that not matter? Or was it set up? Or is he standing there among the rest of the men that brought her in? Again, we don't know. These are all options, but it seems quite obvious, conspicuous. Where is he? If you care at all about what the law says, then why not even mention if he got away? Where is the man? Where is he? The truth is, it's probably more so important to them that they entrap Jesus. That's their motive. That's their main concern, and jurisprudence takes a back seat. And just like any of the other trick questions that Jesus was asked, this question was designed to trap him no matter which side or which answer he gives. You might recall the question that was put to him, Jesus, do you think we should pay taxes? And that was a trap because either way, he's in trouble. If he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes. Well, then they go to Rome and say, this guy's saying that we shouldn't pay taxes. They got him. But if he says we should, then he can go to the temple and say, they're using this idolatrous money to pay to someone who considers himself to be deity. So he, depending on how he answers, they've got a group of people that will make a big deal out of it and cause trouble for him. If not, get him arrested. This is the very same thing. Because what they want him to say is either one. They've got him. They think. If he says, no, she should be spared, then he's contradicting Moses, who said in the law she should be stoned. But then if he says she should be killed, let's go ahead and have her executed then he's in rebellion against Rome because something had happened in this particular setting this, this time period with Rome being uh, in charge their, their occupied territory they did not have the capacity for capital punishment anymore now Rome was a very benevolent lord And for the most part, they would let a people group do their thing uh, with exception. Whenever it came down to capital punishment, they had to oversee that. They weren't going to let a group of people kill one another according to their own laws. That is precisely why Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross and not stoned. They didn't have the capacity to do it. Now, there was one caveat They could kill someone, but it was a Gentile inside the temple courts. And even now you can see the signs on pain of death. No one enters. That was the only time. But other than that, they're going to need Rome's help to kill him. So what does Jesus say? Everybody's watching. It's silent for a moment, I'm sure. Entrapment was what they were looking for. And Jesus is supposed to, if this goes according to plan, in a tight spot. Either way. So what does Jesus do? With the unanswerable trick question, He turns it around and gives them an unanswerable trick question. But not without irritating them first. He bends over, bends down. Whether He was seated and stood up and then got down, or remains seating and writes near the chair. We don't know, but it says that he stooped over and he began to write in the dirt. And for the person with a big imagination or the Bible student, this is an amazing thing to be said because in all the Bible, we don't have anywhere that says that Jesus wrote anything except for here. And we're wondering whether or not John even wrote that. And nobody tells us what he said. Or what he wrote? Wouldn't you like to know what Jesus is writing? Now, the the speculations are almost legendary over the ages of the church as to what he might have been writing. And some say that he's actually writing something that we read in the prophets. About how if you disobey, your names will be written in the sand. Almost as if they're to be erased. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing. And then later in the same prophecy, it talks about not receiving the water of life. Well, that was just earlier. Maybe that's why it was put here. We don't know. We're just not told what Jesus wrote down. Maybe he was writing down sins that these men had committed. Or names of people that they'd committed them with. We don't know what all goes into their reaction and how he immediately silences every last one and they all walk away. But maybe it had something to do with what he's writing. But we don't know. Sometimes it's fun to speculate. But sometimes it's foolish too, right? So let's keep moving. What does he do? He writes on the ground. And maybe the attitude of what he's doing is more important because it seems quite dismissive of their agenda. Tells us that they have to keep asking him as if he's not paying attention to them. And finally he stands up and this is what he says. Whichever one of you is without sin, you go first. Now he's answered the unanswerable question because he hasn't chosen sides. He hasn't talked about Moses and whether or not what he said is true and he hasn't mentioned Rome if we're playing close attention he hasn't answered their question at all not like the way they'd asked it and he certainly hadn't given his opinion on their specific question but it was as if he answered by saying I'm not going to talk to you about the law you know better than that and the law is the law it's the law of God So instead, let's talk about who's going to be the executioner to carry out the law. And that's what they don't want or expect to hear. According to Jewish law, in any case of capital punishment, there had to be witnesses. And the witnesses were the ones to begin the process of stoning. That's who casts the first stone. It's all carried out and written out in Deuteronomy 13 and 17. If you're taking notes, you want to look at this later as your homework. But that's not all. There's language in there that talk about not only the one who's the witness takes or casts the first stone, but they were also to be guiltless of the same sin. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? If you, and, and in Deuteronomy, they're talking about idolatry and serving other gods. And if this happens to be part of your family or you see it, you're the one to bring them in. But you have to be guiltless of the same thing or else the stone should be thrown at you. It's a picture of justice. Does it make sense? So a witness to the specific sin as well as innocent of the specific sin. So it's not that Jesus is requiring sinless perfection in what he's just said and deciding all matters of crime and punishment. Because you could take what he's said here and say, well, that just gets rid of all the judges and juries and police officers and anyone else because nobody's perfect, so nobody can cast a stone. That's not what he's after here. And remember the pretense for the whole thing. It's dripping with hypocrisy and entrapment is their motive. They've run all over justice. They're as guilty as she is, but in another way. And Jesus is calling them out on it. Rather guiltlessness is what he's referring to. And these men are anything but. Entrapment was what they'd been there from the beginning. Hypocrisy was no hurdle. They used this woman. And though we don't have access to what actually went on, you've got to wonder by the absence of the man involved and to whether or not they used her in more ways than one. And all to get to Jesus. So if she was taken in the act and there's no witness, then who's going to cast the first stone? And it almost seems as if the emphasis is not necessarily if there's no witness... If there's anyone guiltless, go first. Now if we consider that as it is, witness to the sin as well as innocent of it, whichever one among you is without sin, don't you think that sentence should put every last one of us out of the rock-throwing business for the rest of our lives? Now, there are times where crimes will have to be punished. But this is as far as the hypocritical games we want to play, where we like to position ourselves on a ladder higher than someone who's lower than us by comparing ourselves. Those who had come to shame Jesus now walk away in shame. As a result, it says this happened from the oldest to the youngest. Now, we're not told what that means. What do you think it means? Are the older men more guilty? Are the younger men, maybe not, they hadn't got around to it yet? Maybe are the older men wiser? Or maybe the older men have thrown more rocks and they're more ashamed. I don't know. But the older I've gotten and the, the greater view of the brokenness of humanity, especially descriptive of verses like Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I just uh, changed the who to Isaac. Can't know it. The older I get, the more I realize this world in no way, shape, or fashion works like it was supposed to. And the more people that I've seen and talked to and in ministry and listening to their testimonies about things that come through their lives or troubles they've lived through and have heard some of them actually say, I throw a lot fewer rocks than I used to. Maybe that's a badge earned with maturity. It takes us a while to learn that, that throwing rocks is a sorry business. Well, by the end of verse 9, all those men are gone oldest first, youngest after. And what we're left with is the most wondrous part of the story, I think, as far as dramatics, a picture, something to just wrap the mind around and think. It says that Jesus and the woman are left alone. Now likely that means that alone as far as the men who brought her in there. Whether or not the whole crowd that was listening to start with, I don't think they would have walked off. I think they'd be paying attention to it all. They may still be paying attention to it all. But as far as those men, they are gone. The woman is still there. And now everyone's looking at Jesus and this woman. And could the picture be any clearer against the backdrop of that one specific sin? Unfaithfulness. What you've got is the incarnate purity of God. No mark, no blemish, never sinned. Standing there with the most pitiful thing. The earth has ever seen. His creation. Made in his own image. Pronounced good when he was done with it. But defiled by sin. Spotted. Marred. Broken. And guilty. There's no question from beginning of this story to the end. Whether or not. She's guilty. Now as far as what Jesus has said up to this point. He has still upheld the law of Moses. He's only made clarifications as to who's qualified to be the executor. To take a stone and to cast it. There's actually one that is qualified to cast a stone in this story. He was. But what does he do? Well, he doesn't. And he continues to speak. There's very few words, but the weight of them seem to be massive. Glorious purity incarnate standing alongside convicted impurity. According to his own judgment, he's qualified as an executioner. But what does Jesus say? He calls her by the name he had used for his mother. In chapter 2, the wedding feast in Cana, he speaks to Mary, his mother. He uses the term woman. And we thought, well, that doesn't sound quite right. I don't refer to my wife as woman in our house. I certainly wouldn't say that in front of my dad at home, being my mother. But that's just the difference in the way we talk and the way they talk. This is quite respectful. It's the way that he introduces John to his mother, to take his place at the cross, when he says, woman, behold thy son. That's the term that he uses to refer to this woman. Now just imagine the contrast. What do you think those men called her? They took her into custody. And hauled her in in front of all those people to tell everybody what she'd done publicly. I'm sure they had some things that they called her. And there's been things that we've been called... Perhaps some of those things stick. Perhaps some of them, they're just hateful. But this is totally different. And we might even see a difference in the look on her face. I don't know. Because when she came in, I'm sure she was angry, horrified. Maybe defiant. But there's no claim for innocence here or plead for mercy. Jesus simply asks the question where are your accusers? She simply says there are none. And then Jesus says the most beautiful thing a fallen, broken, sinful creature in his own image could ever hear. And we should have seen this coming because if we were to rewind go to John 3 and it's right behind The most well-known verse in all the Bible, and that's why I think it can get overlooked so much, is verse 17 of chapter 3, John 3, 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Now this is why I ask you to turn to Romans 8. So flip over to where you stuck your bulletin. And I want to show you where we see the theological implications of what we've seen in this story illustrated so dramatically. Began with a few words on textual difficulties of this passage. So that's why we'll anchor this in something that we have no worries about textually. Let's just say had the copyists chosen to omit that paragraph we've just studied, because they didn't know where to put it, and we never read it, we wouldn't have any less, any more or less of a Bible. It's all right here in Romans. Maybe not without the drama maybe that's why they decided to keep it the illustration is priceless but let's just say we've got what we need paul's been explaining the work of jesus for us through his death and when he gets to verse 8 or chapter 8 he's beginning to lay out the implications this is as precious to hear as what this woman heard said by jesus There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh what has he condemned sin what was he not sent into this world to do condemn sinners but the only way it works is to be in him we could read on in chapter 3 after verse 17 To not receive the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ is to be condemned already. But through what Jesus has done, there's no condemnation. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law. Have you lived up to that? Can anybody live up to that? No. Might be fulfilled in us. We get credit for it who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So if you wanted to just try to put this in a mind-picture format, what had Jesus done for this woman during this story? He had put Himself and His redeeming, atoning love and mercy between her and her sin. I'll separate you from your sin. I'll take that. And I'll give you what you don't have. The ability to go... And sin no more. Don't forget that last part. Because the world might say, all right, go. You're free to go. Who am I to say that you should do anything or be anything? I won't tell on you if you won't tell on me. Well, I'll just lay off each other. Not with Jesus. He says, go and sin no more. Go and be changed. I've bought you. I can do this for you. So the proper response to mercy received on account of past sins through salvation is purity in the future. So if you want to write these things down, rapid succession, cuz we're drawing to a conclose. There are at least 3 things we've learned in this both in what we've read in John's gospel and in Romans, whether it's Paul or whether it's John or someone else. We're not condemned as Christians. In Christ, our sins are atoned for, washed away, and forgiven. We are not condemned. Number two, we are no longer enslaved. In Christ, we are no longer enslaved to our passions, but set free from the power of sin, just as we are set free from the penalty of sin. And number three, because we're not condemned and no longer enslaved, we're not the same. And only Jesus can do that. And just to show you that this story of forgiveness, this story that we hold preciously, we've heard it since we were children perhaps, that seems to speak to us, and that the copyists and compilers and scribes didn't know what to do with it, they didn't throw it away. It's not just there, it's all over the New Testament. Theologically, it's explained in Romans. But then I think majestically, it's explained in Titus. And we'll close with these words. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. Family. Would anyone write a story like that? Man is teaching. People are listening. Group brings in a woman caught in adultery. And before it's all said and done, Jesus says, Would you like to be part of my family? I love you so much. I'll stand in your place. I'll pay for it all. You can be mine. That's the love story of the New Testament. The love of a God who loved the world so much that He gave His Son so that you wouldn't need to perish, but have eternal life. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to study, to interpret Scripture with Scripture, to line up the stories with the sermons and the theology, and to speak to hearts. Lord, speak to our heart. Speak to our mind. And Lord, may we hear your voice and repent of our sins so that we can go and sin no more. Lord, it's it's a salvation we can't refuse. So great a salvation. You're our Savior. You're our Rescuer. Thank you for this we've studied your word, its authority. We ask these things in your name. Amen.